0: Thanks for tuning in to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our hope for you is that you would feel the welcome home of Christ wherever you're listening from today. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey to be with Jesus and become like Him for the sake of the world. Let's dive in. Well, good morning, Bridge fam. Yeah. That's my brother-in-law. I know it. I can tell already. Pray for him. Um, welcome. Good morning. How are you all? It's so good to see you. A very special welcome, as always, to our Columbia and online family. We love you guys. Uh, As you notice by that very cool bumper, we're in the book of James. So you can turn or swipe or Google James chapter two. That's where we'll be today. And I don't normally name sermons ahead of time. We have a brilliant comms department that usually takes care of that. But the working title that I have for the text today is this, the sin of snobbery. Yeah, it's going to be one of those days. So. Uh, because it's going to be one of those days, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you for the gift of today, of this moment, of the last breath that we just took, God. We know that we're not owed any of that. And whether we're having a, a great week or a devastating week or somewhere in between, God, would you just simply meet us where we're at, whatever kind of day, whatever kind of moment we're bringing God, would you just meet us, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you do a work in us that we could never do on our own? We thank you, God, we love you. And we pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Uh, my two oldest boys are really into this trend that became a pretty terrible show called Is It Cake? Have you guys seen this? Yeah, the title gives away the premise. That's the whole show, Is It Cake? There's like these bakers that make super realistic cakes and they turn it into, into a game show. That's pretty bizarre, but also like kind of fun. And my boys are always like, can we watch Is It Cake? And I'm like, don't you want to watch dinosaurs? Or they're like, no, cake, cake, cake. I'm like, all right, well, that's probably on me. But um, I thought it'd be fun for us to play a little Is It Cake right now. Is that okay? Yeah. We're going to play it anyway. So it's going to... Whatever you said, we're going to... Okay, so here's, here's the first item. I want you to take a look at this. Okay. Who says it's cake? Who says it's not? Let's find out. It's a shoe. Okay. If you're keeping points, then, yeah, we can celebrate winners later. Okay, next item. This uh, remote control. Oh, okay. Very realistic looking. This is maybe a decoy. What's Pastor Ian up to? Who says cake? Who says not cake? Let's find out. Not cake, also remote control. (laughs) Fell for it again. Okay, but this third one, roll of threes, we know how it goes, we have this very cuddly stuffed animal here. Who says it's cake? Who says it's not cake? You are correct, it's definitely not cake, and this is terrifying. (laughs) That's the thing of nightmares, right? Like, our brilliant graphic designer, Austin, was like, why do they cut everything else evenly, but this looks like a murder scene? Like, it's a very, Weird, okay, that was, a, that was a bit of a decoy. Here's a, just a, a free piece of advice. Just because someone with a microphone says it doesn't mean it's true, okay? Uh, that said, though, let's play an actual Is It Cake game. Are we ready? Okay, here we go. Here's uh, a couple of apples, uh, and I want you to hold up what number you think is cake. One, two, three, or four, hold it up, hold it up. Come on, let's see, we're all friends here. All right, let's find out which one's cake. Who said three? Let me see my threes. Yeah. All right. Right on. Uh, Okay. Back to the shoes thing. We got two shoes. Who says front? Who says back? Who says the front is cake? Who says the back one's cake? Let's find out. Cake shoe. Just so unappealing, right? All right. Last one. Last one. I promise. Last one. I promise. Uh, All right. Which item from this Cane's chicken meal is cake? Which item? You got it locked in? If you said any one item, you're wrong because the whole thing is cake. All of it is, even the soda is cake. It's all, it's all in fact, I, I saw this meme a couple weeks ago that I can't stop thinking about. Here's what this guy tweeted. He says, the year is 2030. Bakery art is so realistic. Literally anything could be cake. The uncertainty has gripped the world in fear. I go to hug my wife for comfort. She is cake. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Is it cake mania? has taken the world by storm. And I do all of that silliness for two reasons. One, hopefully you'll still remember that tomorrow morning to connect it to the second point. Sometimes it's difficult to know what's beneath the surface. Sometimes it's difficult to know what's beneath the surface and we're way better at deciphering that than we think we are. Nope, let me say that again. We're way worse at it. We're way worse at deciphering what's beneath the surface, not just with cakes but with people, with human souls. And that I think is what James is gonna wanna kinda go after today in James chapter two. A quick reminder, James is the half brother of Jesus, no pressure, right? You thought your brother accomplished a lot, try having your older brother be the Messiah. And we know from scripture that James pre-resurrection was not a believer that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, he practically disowns them. And following the resurrection, he goes from not only being um, a cynic, to a believer, but an avid advocate, eventually becoming the leader of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So he, I think, has a very unique vantage point on what it means to be a Christ follower in the world as someone who grew up with Jesus himself. And so as we come to James chapter two, he doesn't waste any time. Here's what he says in chapter two, verse one. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So right off the bat, he makes a, a statement about brothers and sisters, and this is easy to miss, but the statement brothers and sisters is a theological statement. He's simply letting us know like, hey, you're not just sort of like a part of a, like a movement or an idea or an ideology or a philosophy. You are now brothers and sisters, and favoritism stands in stark contrast to truly seeing each other as brothers and sisters. So he makes a theological statement right at the top. Here's what I know to be true though, as a pastor, as a Christ follower, that it's not enough to simply have right theology. In fact, I've been guilty of this, maybe you can relate. It's possible to have a big head and a shrinking heart. To know all of the doctrine, know all the theology, but have it not actually affect the way we live our lives at all. If your theology does not transform how you live, it's false theology. That is sort of the theme that James is getting at here. He's saying there's a lot of people in the church that like to judge based on fill in your own blank. Salary, car, preference, political affiliation, history, platform, the house they do or don't live in. In fact, Jesus himself, a question was asked in John chapter one. Someone said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right from the get-go, there was this assumption like, no, he can't be the man. Look at at the town that he's coming from. Look at the pedigree. Look at the background. And I think we are just as susceptible of doing the same. Now, in the Greek here, uh, it's maybe even better translated, not just simply not showing favoritism, but stop showing favoritism. In the Greek, it's a command. It's an imperative. And it implies that it was already starting to happen. In the first century church, this was already becoming an issue. People were showing partiality to various different people. Now, another interesting fact, and I won't land here too long. the, The English word favoritism is actually a compound of two different Greek words. Two different Greek words that mean to receive and to face. It literally means to receive someone's face, to take someone at face value. It's about approving or rejecting someone based on outward appearance. James is going to get after our tendency to make superficial, surface, and snap judgments about other people. And just to put this out there, as bluntly and as lovingly as I can, faith in Jesus and partiality are mutually exclusive. Faith in Jesus and partiality are mutually, they are incompatible. Why? Because Jesus showed no favoritism to us. Right? Most famous passage in all the scripture, for God so loved the what? World. Not the people who look and talk and act and think and vote exactly the way that you or I do. Jesus showed no partiality. So for us then to do the counter is incompatible with Christianity. So James continues and he gives a bit of a, uh, an illustration here in verse two. <clears throat> he says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. The poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now the word meeting here is literally the word synagogue and scholars kind of disagree. Are they talking about the actual gathering at the synagogue or are they talking about meetings at homes? But there's a little bit about synagogues in the first century world that I think are worth noting. In synagogues, women sat on one side, men sat on the other and it was divided by a curtain. And there actually were special seats of honor that were typically graded based on the importance of the person who came in. There was these chief seats that were reserved for kind of the aristocrats of the community. People were sorted according to their rank and according to their status. So um, imagine James is saying this to the early church. He's like, okay, church. So this baller shows up on a Sunday, right? And he rolls in on like the newest model camel or whatever. Outfits, bussin', did I do that right? Is that right? For real, for real? I don't know, I don't know. I'm clearly, (laughs) I'm out of my element here. But he talks about like these gold rings. In fact, some commentators argue that he's not just referencing one gold ring, but multiple. And in fact, in some communities, they would wear uh, as many as six gold rings on each finger, which feels very impractical, very Edward Scissorhands-y. But like, there was even, even in the first century, there was uh, uh, businesses where you could rent fine jewelry to make an impression somewhere else. We still have that today, by the way. Renting jewelry so you can really make a splash, really make an entrance. In fact, he talks about the clothes here, fine clothes in the Greek literally means shining like a lamp, (laughs) i.e. flashy. Think sequins. No knock to anyone wearing sequins this morning, by the way. (laughs) Essentially what he's getting at is like, imagine someone shows up and they really want to be noticed. They really want to be treated with this high regard. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving that guy a seat of honor as long as you also do for the second guy. But James is saying, if you don't, if you judge by appearances, you become prejudice. James says, a judge with evil intent. The word evil here in the original language literally means vicious. A judge with vicious intent. Now, to be totally candid, like I can tend to let myself off the hook at this part of the scripture. Like, these are not typically things that I am tempted by. The problem is that my favoritism tends to be a lot more subtle, a lot more secretive. I can read a passage like this, I'm like, well, I've never done, I've never walked anyone to the front. People typically don't want to sit in the front row, right? Like, you guys, sorry, my bad. Uh, that's typically not how we do things. My problem, maybe you can relate, is that my favoritism, my partiality, my prejudice... Tends to be a lot more subtle. I think we all make superficial snap judgments about people based on limited information. There was a, a commercial years ago by Canon, and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is true for some of you. Like ever since having kids, even like a like a well edited commercial can make me cry. Everything makes me cry now at this point. I don't know what the I don't know what my problem is. But they, Canon conducted an experiment, and it was you know, ultimately to sell cameras. But they, they brought in a subject, and then they brought in six different photographers separately to uh, photograph a portrait of this man. And he, here are the six portraits that they ended up with of this man. Now at first blush, these almost look like six different people. And the twist was that to each photographer, they told a different lie about this man's past. And here's the different lie that each photographer was told about this man, that he was an ex-con, a fisherman, a lifesaver, a millionaire, an alcoholic, and a psychic. So they're hanging these photos and they're walking, and literally some of the photographers are like, these look like six different people. And the guy walks in and he says, uh, we haven't been entirely truthful with you. I'm not an ex-con, I'm not a millionaire. And then he says, I'm not psychic, I can barely spell it. <laughs> This I think is such a profound picture of what we are all tempted to do with every person we encounter all the time. To make a snap, superficial judgment about them based on limited information. The portrait we form of a person is shaped by our own perceptions. The snap judgments we make about people influence not only how we see them, but also how we treat them. And in James' time, people were discriminating, at least in this particular context, based on wealth. But there are lots of areas we do the same. Am I wrong? Could be appearance, could be success, could be race, could be age, could be denomination, could be political affiliation. We are obsessed with distinctions. And yet, the narrative, particularly of the New Testament, is that Jesus knocks down walls, not puts them up. He erases lines that we're so apt to draw. In fact, there's a a, a comedian named Emo Phillips that uh, this is probably the first and last time I ever referenced him on a Sunday, but he had a joke that went something like this. This is Emo Phillips, by the way. He said, once I saw this guy on a bridge about to jump. I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, are you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him over. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke, okay. (laughs) But I think it actually reveals something that's true in a lot of our hearts. We are constantly, almost always, creating categories and distinctions, often to know how we stack up or who we let in, right? And I'm not saying there isn't a place for discernment, but is it possible that we are actually putting up walls? We are drawing lines where Jesus doesn't. He goes on uh, in verse five. It says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom, he promised those who love him. That sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. But you, have not, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? We live in a world today where like eight men own more than the poorest half of humanity. That's that's just true. And that's almost kind of easy, I think, to rail after. But James is saying how we spend our money demonstrates whether or not we bear the family resemblance. Not only that, it indicates which kingdom matters most to us. That's not to say that being rich is bad. If you're rich, that means that there's that much more potential good that you can do. Proverbs 28, 7 says, He that gives to the poor shall not lack he that hides his eyes shall have many a curse. That's a, that's a promise for the generous. You can give and give and give and give. And many of you know this to be true. God will replenish. There was an Anglican priest, an evangelist named David Watson. And he said he knew an old farmer who was always giving money away for God, yet he never seemed to lack. And he asked the farmer one day, how does this work? This was the farmer's response. He said, God keeps filling up my barn I go in there and throw it out, but he keeps throwing it in. His shovel is bigger than my pitchfork. (laughs) I love that image. God's shovel is bigger than my pitchfork. The Bible also says this about Jesus in 2 Corinthians. Speaking of Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor, that through his poverty, we might be made rich. It is worth noting That during his earthly ministry, Jesus did not spend the bulk of his time in palaces. He did not spend the bulk of his time trying to buddy up to people of power and influence. It is worth noting that the first three decades of his life were in relative obscurity. And yet so often we're clamoring for the influence for the platform to buddy up to the most powerful person in the room. And we might even pretend that we have good motives or have good motives. James is reminding us though that the gospel is good news not just for those who are successful in the eyes of the world. He says he actually uses the weak things to shame the strong, the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. To modern sensibilities, a cross makes terrible math. But in the kingdom, it's the only math that matters. So how are we showing partiality. Because not only did Jesus not spend much time in palaces, he spent a lot of time with people who the religious elite took issue with. In fact, they accused him, this is in your Bible, they accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. That's how much he was partying. It's like the religious leaders were like, that can't be the Messiah, people enjoy him. That, is, that doesn't work for our math at all. And I don't think their issue was that Jesus was serving them. I think their issue was that he was being associated with them, that's different. Why is Jesus spending all of this time with those people? That's not proper, that's not right. Who are those people for you, in your mind, right now? that you struggle to believe God sees and knows and loves. James continues with his warning, by the way. We're not done yet. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you... What's the word? I don't use that word lightly, and I don't think James does either. If you show favoritism... Partiality, you sin, you're fracturing shalom, the wholeness that we were created for and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a law breaker. So next to loving God, Jesus says that loving your neighbor as yourself is the greatest commandment. And James is reminding us that showing favoritism stands in sharp contrast to that. This is why the gospel is so good. Because we've all broken the law. We all fall short of the kingdom of God. The point of the law isn't to hold it up to our life and say, I'm doing pretty good. We should measure our life to the law and say, not even close. The goal is all of this? Perfectly? Forever? No. Not even close. Which is the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of mercy. And when God shows that favor and affection to us, Christ followers, how can we keep from showing it to others? When God showed no partiality, regardless of your track record, what you've done, not done, been done to you. I have a tendency, to be honest, to let myself off the hook when it comes to this. And I say a little bit of what he's saying here, like at least I'm not murdering anyone, right? There's one more piece though that James adds, verse 12. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It sounds a lot like the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. Evidence of a transformed life. It's not our way of earning salvation. But one author once said, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone by the blood of Jesus. Nothing we could do to earn or merit that. And when that actually takes root in our hearts and our lives, how we live changes. Distinctions that we held, that we that we white-knuckled judgment that we held over other people, maybe not in a day, but it begins to melt away because we understand that forgiven people are forgiving people. I've been forgiven when I could do nothing to earn or deserve it. So how am I going to hold this over your head? How am I going to give you the seat of honor, but tell you to sit back there because, well, ultimately this is better for optics. By this point in James' letter, I get the point that God does not approve of favoritism, but something else struck me about this verse, that how we treat people is also mysteriously connected to our own freedom. Even like the subtle unconscious biases in my life, they don't just take something from someone else. They actually take something from me. Favoritism robs me of freedom, of living as a free person. It's going back, to use the language of Paul, to slavery. To inst- like That's the old way of life. That's how we used to create distinctions and categories. That's, that's, that's not the way of the kingdom anymore. So I want to challenge us today to not simply not do something. Some of us are very familiar with that kind of church, right? You're just going, and then the pastor's going to give a list of things to stop doing, And maybe you're sitting there thinking what I often thought like, well, those are all the things I currently do. So now what? I don't want to simply leave a challenge to to not show favoritism, but to do something. Not just don't show favoritism, but show favor to everyone. To everyone. A first step towards showing favor is to acknowledge that every single person is an image bearer of God. You have never looked in the eyes of a person Jesus does not love. And if we lived with that reality front and center, would that change the way that we talked to the waiter that was a little bit later with our food than we'd like? Or the barista that got our name wrong on the cup again, it's not that hard? or the faceless nameless person that cut us off in traffic, if we knew that there is not a single person whose face we've looked into or even shouted a profanity at that Jesus does not love, would that change the way that we live our lives? No matter their color, age, gender, economic status, religion, politics, orientation, all are made in the image and likeness of God, the Imago Dei. There's a quote that I've I've loved for, gosh, probably decades at this point. Philosopher Samuel Johnson said, the true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. It's, It's easy, it's expected to treat someone who can further your career or up your game, your status, of course. Anyone's going to be nice or kind or gracious to that person. The true measure of a person is how they treat the person that can't advance them. That actually ultimately, at least in an earthly sense, can do them no good. And here's the beauty of the gospel is that we actually have a person who showed us how to live this way. It's Jesus. When the crowd wanted to stone a woman for her behavior, Jesus said, he that is without sin can cast the first stone when his disciples tried to keep children away from him because, I mean, in that day, children were not really worthy of any attention at all. Jesus said, let the children come to me for the kingdom belongs to such as these. When the religious elite accused him of eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus said, for I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. So let me just ask you, who in your world are the overlooked? The overlooked the marginalized, the vulnerable, the ones that are rarely if ever shown favor? Who are the ones that don't ever get acknowledged? Post-resurrection, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples who are like both pumped and freaked out, understandably. And he said, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's gonna happen, but for now I need you to wait, which would not be the thing that I would wanna hear at that point, but they did. They gathered consistently and prayed and worshiped and sang and broke bread together. And then in Acts chapter two, it's called Pentecost. It's like the birthday of the church. While they were gathered, while they were praying, it's a really wild scene if you wanna go read it. There's like the sound of this violent wind and then this whole other part where like things that look like tongues of fire are resting on people's heads. It's wild, it's wild. But the part that I love is that when the Holy Spirit descends on this first kind of gathering of the church, they all began to speak in different languages, different tongues. In fact, it causes such a stir that understandably a crowd starts to gather. And this crowd gathers and they're hearing their own native tongue. And they're hearing the proclamation of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And they ask themselves, how are they able to do this? What does does this mean? God's spirit was so evident in his church that an amazingly diverse group of people came together all speaking of the wonders of Jesus in their own language. There was no favoritism, but all kinds of favor. And what made all the difference? I think it's found in one short verse in Acts 2. Everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is, I think, absolutely critical for us because when the Holy Spirit is present and active, everyone's welcome. Everyone's invited. When the Holy Spirit is present and active, those distinctions, that favoritism, that partiality starts to melt away. And you might be thinking, man, this Christian life thing sounds difficult. I would say apart from the Holy Spirit, it's not difficult, it's impossible. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian life isn't just hard. It's impossible. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you don't love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Live a life of dying to yourself, of sacrifice and generosity. But when the power of the Holy Spirit is moving and present and active in our hearts, in our lives, it changes the way we live. And just a few chapters later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, we read this. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize, which I love. That's so Peter, right? Like, oh, I now, I now get it. Peter's seen a lot of things. Here's what he now realizes after seeing what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. That's the gospel. Jesus showed favor, unmerited affection, unearned forgiveness to all who would receive him. That's really, really good news. You've never looked in the eyes of anyone Jesus doesn't love. Because the truth is, we all deserve judgment, but we are given mercy. God grafts us into his family, not just simply as as spectators, but as brothers and sisters. And here's the truth. We're all going to face judgment one day. We are all going to have to give an account of how we treated people and we will either have to give an account or get to give an account. We will either have to or we will get to. And the thing, the thing that keeps me up at night as a pastor, I think it's it's possible to have a saved soul but a wasted life. That we have legitimately Recognize that we are sinners. Received grace and mercy and forgiveness. But we've taken that and just simply buried it in the ground. It's possible to have a safe soul and a wasted life. And may, maybe you will go to heaven. But will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. My prayer for us as a church is this. May our opinion of others pale in comparison to our love for others. May my opinion of others pale in comparison to my love for others, which is not ultimately my love, it's the love of the Father. I believe our world desperately wants to see this. A church that knocks down walls, shows no favoritism, but generously offers favor to anyone and to everyone they meet. Just remember what James said, if you really keep the royal law, the royal law comes from a king, by the way. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. James, is, he's echoing the words of his brother because he gets that everyone was created by and loved by God. Church, that means that loving others, is way better than getting ahead of others. <laughs> way better. I'll end with this. There's a, uh, a book called One Church from the, Fren- the Fence by uh, Wes Seelinger, and he writes this. I've spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. A person is a father first, a black man second. A garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his. And everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. Everyone is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is all about. Long before we're in the intensive care waiting room, maybe we can learn to live like that too. Let's not wait for this moment. I've been in way more rooms like that than I can count at this point. And I've seen this to be true. I don't want us to wait until we're there to, by the grace of God, to away with these distinctions, these categories. If you study the history of the church, you'll find people who were persecuted, rejected, despised, but accepted by God. I'd rather be poor in this world and rich in heaven than the other way around. You've never met a person that Jesus doesn't love there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Think about the person you avoid at all cost, that you try desperately not to make eye contact with. Jesus died for that person too. And lastly, I know that many of us, as I've been talking, you've been thinking about some other person or a group of people. My guess is though, that some of you, this whole time, you've been thinking about yourself. I'm the one that Jesus could never love. I'm the one that God could never forgive. Friend, I implore you to hear me. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truest thing about you is that you are loved. The truest thing about you is that you're loved. No one has the right to define you except the one who made you, and he calls you beloved. It's not just love your neighbor, end of sentence. It's love your neighbor as yourself. May we all this week, this month, this year, live from that place of belovedness. God sees you the most fully and loves you the most deeply. That's, that's such good news not because of anything that you've done or could ever do. So let's be a people who are so filled with God's spirit, so alive to walking in the way of the kingdom, imperfectly as we all will do, that people will encounter his extravagant love by how we live. Let's pray. God, there are um, more times than I can count that I have harbored anger and jealousy, bitterness. I've probably even tried to knock someone else down a rung to somehow try to make myself feel better. God, I have bought the lie that I am the sum of my accomplishments, that I'm only as loved as productive I am, as uh, so forever, whatever person any of us are thinking of in this moment that we've been holding distinctions against, we've created a, a favoritism in our hearts and our souls and our minds. Would you knock those walls down, God? And not because of something that we like grit and muster on our own, but with your eyes, including ourselves, we thank you, God, for loving us when we could do nothing to earn or deserve it. We love you and we pray all these things in the resurrected name of jesus and everybody said amen thanks so much for joining us and for those of you who support our mission thank you for your joyful generosity it's because you give that we're able to see lives changed forever by the gospel you can click the link in the description of this episode to give now or go to bridge.tv for more information about our church We believe the gospel is good news worth sharing. So if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and share this episode with family and friends on social media. You can also tag us at BridgeChurchTN. Thanks again for listening.